Hello and welcome to Leaving Egypt. I'm Jenny Sinclair. And I'm Al Roxburgh. This podcast is for you if you want to explore the unfolding vocation of the church in these times of unraveling. We'll be doing two things, reading the signs of the times and sharing grassroots stories. We'll be having some brilliant conversations with fascinating people and we'll discover how local expressions of God's people are contributing to the reweaving of hope in our common life. We do hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaving Egypt. So our guest today is William Kavanagh, Bill Kavanagh, calling from Chicago. Bill's a Catholic theologian, known for his work in political theology and Christian ethics. He's a professor at DePaul University, and we're excited to discuss with him what's happened to society and to the church, and how the church is called to respond in this time of unraveling. So Bill, welcome. Good to have you with us today. We'd like to begin by uh, giving our listeners a flavor of who you are. And so we just invite you to talk a little bit about your own journey uh, and give us an overview of yourself. Yeah, well, I guess I'm not really a very interesting person, but I write uh, (laughs) as if I were one. Um, I grew up uh, near Chicago um, in a kind of uh, suburban uh, environment. My mom grew up on a farm. My dad grew up in the city. And we ended up in the suburbs in a kind of um, uh, bland but congenial post-Vatican II Catholic uh, environment. Um, it kind of is still a church still running on the fumes of immigrant Catholicism in a lot of ways. And um, uh, it was important to us, but we never talked about it. It was kind of like sex in that way. Religion was around my house. You, it was very important, but you never talked about it. Um, but we were always in church on Sunday. Um, and I think, um, so I went off to, uh, Notre Dame, uh, intending on majoring in chemical engineering And I took a theology class and kind of got hooked. And part of what interested me was kind of trying to discover what it might mean to be uh, Catholic in uh, in this world. What difference uh, does it make? Um, And uh, then I had uh, ran into Stanley Hauerwas, uh, a famous theologian, and he kind of rocked uh, my world. So... Um, then spent the next few years sort of looking for the kind of church that Stanley was uh, talking about. He taught a course called uh, Christian Ethics in America. And the story he told was starting out with Walter Rauschenbusch in the 1890s, you know, where the church was going to go and change America and then ending up where America had changed the church and um, asking, you know, how did that happen? And, what are the alternatives? Um, so I uh, spent a year after college uh, teaching high school in a volunteer program where we had kind of, you know, mandatory simple living. Um, got a master's degree uh, in theology at Cambridge and then went to Latin America, still kind of looking for this church. Uh, and so I lived in a poor area of Santiago, Chile for a little over two years uh, under the military dictatorship. 
the Pinochet military dictatorship. And this was a time in which the church was really the only institutional uh, resistance, place of resistance to uh, the military regime and the human rights abuses going on there. So it was a very exciting uh, and interesting uh, time to be there. Um, and uh, we lived in a uh, shanty town um, on the east side of Santiago and uh, lived as much as we could um, with with our neighbors, with our poor neighbors. And that was a very formative experience uh, for me. So um, came back then and got a PhD in theology at Duke under Stanley Harawas and have been a, a theology professor, still kind of trying to work through all of these questions about what it might mean to be a Christian in the contemporary world. Um, so uh, still interested in mostly in kind of social, political kinds of issues, but trying to um, figure out what um, what connection there might be between, you know, what we do on Sundays and the liturgy, you know, the Eucharist, and uh, what we do the rest of the the rest of the week. You have um, you've written a number of books, and uh, that really revolve around what you just said—the relationship between what we do on Sunday and then our life in for you, the way you describe it, this kind of suburbanized America as Christians. And uh, one of one of those books was uh, The Migration of the Holy. And could you say a little bit about what you mean by that? Uh, what is the migration that took place? Yeah, so that's a phrase that <clears throat> I stole from uh, the British historian John Bossy, who uses huh. that um, at the towards the end of his book, uh, Christianity in the West, uh, where he, I think it's 1400 to 1700 or something like that, um, where he talks about the migration of the holy from the church to the state. And so all of the kind of trappings of sacredness uh, get trans, not all, but uh, many of them get transferred to the monarchies that are uh, arising. And so Queen Elizabeth I, you know, has herself paraded around in the same way that the Eucharistic host was uh, paraded around in Corpus Christi processions, and, and very deliberately so. And um, the monarchy in France is sacralized and so on. So I adopt this term to question whether we live in a secular world or just a world where the, the holy has not disappeared but has migrated to other places like the state and the market, uh, maybe the self, the celebrity. There's, there's lots of different places it can go. But um, so it's a challenge to this idea that we live in a secular world where the sacred has just gone missing you know, um, uh, disenchanted world, as uh, Max Weber uh, put it. And uh, thinking that we haven't been disenchanted so much as misenchanted, as uh, Eugene McCarraher puts it in his big book, uh, The Enchantments of Mammon, which is subtitled uh, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity. And he... Uh, you know, go, going through 
um, uh, economists and um, advertising uh, agencies and corporations, uh, kind of internal memos and so on, kind of talking about um, the way that the uh, capitalism kind of becomes the new religion uh, over the course of the last couple of centuries and kind of illustrating this in, in great detail. So I actually have a new book coming out in January on idolatry, uh, where oh. I try to work this out um, in detail. It's the longest book I've ever written. It's 500 pages long, and it'll Ooh. be out in a few weeks. Um, Great. And the, and I try to, to kind of um, talk about this in, in great detail, both uh, theologically and through sociology and political science and, and a lot of other disciplines. Mm. This. Can, can I just um, ask a question really about the response of the church in this moment? I'd love you to come back to that idolatry piece perhaps a little bit later or, or the way that you answer this. But I think you've you've written about um, how the church doesn't need necessarily more clarity but more charity and that, that the church needs to um, be a window in which uh, people see the face of the poor Christ and lots of people now, a lot of our listeners are church leaders across all denominations. And, and they're interested to figure out how they respond to this moment. And how should the church be at this moment? And I know that, you know, you've also written about, you know, some people think that, you know, the church will find its rise through, you know, electing the right people. Other people think the church will find its place through being prophetic for social justice. You know, there are different paths that people think uh, the church needs to find its way. And I know you have a lot to say around this, and I just, I'd love to hear you sort of riff around that that kind of uh, position that the church has found itself in at the moment. You, you, you were saying before about um, how it, America has changed the church. We have a, a global audience, and that, so we're talking about the UK and Canada and Australia and, and, and other places as well. And I think the same thing has happened to the church in many, different, particularly in the West, um, so I'd just love to hear your thoughts around that. Yeah, so that um, the contrast of clarity and charity uh, in some ways, I think, marks um, what Pope Francis is trying to do um, uh, to emphasize charity uh, rather than clarity of doctrine. Um, I think some of his predecessors saw the, the, the main problem that we're facing as a problem of um, relativism, where people are confused and don't know um, what's true and what's not true, and the church needs to be very firm in stating uh, the truth. And of course, there's you know, a lot to be said uh, in a positive way about that, but I think Pope Francis has grasped that um, the, the problem isn't that people are unclear about what the church teaches. The problem is that they don't see Christians uh, living it out. And so that's where the charity uh, comes from. Um, we, we can't, you know, we can, getting our ideas right is, um, is important, but it's, it, it's not important if nobody's listening. Uh, and I think this is what uh, Pope Francis has grasped, that you've got to 
uh, touch people's hearts before they're going to listen to what you have to say. And so the idea of charity, of kind of getting out beyond ourselves um, about instead of scolding people uh, and scolding the world for being off the rails, uh, we need to get out into the streets and accompany people where they are. And um, and that's the kind of thing that is going to make uh, Christianity attractive. It's gonna it's gonna make a a difference in the world and show what the what the gospel has to offer the world. So um, there's a lot. I think there's a lot of fear um, amongst Christians as we see the church shrinking in numbers in the Western world. Uh, and one of the reactions to this has been, um, uh, besides the, the, the idea of clarity, um, you know, that people think that Pope Francis has introduced confusion, uh, into the, into the ranks. And I just don't think that's why people are leaving the church in, in droves. Um, but another, I think, um, uh, blind alley that people uh, tend to go down is to think that um, we need to use the state insofar as possible to reclaim the position of Christianity in the um, in the world, uh, and I think this is a huge mistake and absolutely counterproductive. You know, um, the idea that Donald Trump, for example, is going to be the champion of Christianity uh, in the United States um, is exactly why a lot of people are just leaving the churches uh, in droves. And um, I was in uh, Hungary uh, a month ago and um, people talked about how under the Orban uh, regime, uh, there's all sorts of uh, government money that's available to the churches. And it's been written into the constitution that Hungary is a Christian nation. And precisely over that 20 year period in which Orban has been mostly in power, uh, the percentage of Hungarians who identify themselves as Christians has dropped by half. And so I think a lot of people, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think a lot of people see um, this attempt to use power to, uh, you know, reinstate the position of the church and they don't want any part of that. Uh, and so um, so there's a, a number of kind of blind alleys, I think, that uh, Christians are, are, are wrong to go down. And I, I, I favor the, the approach of, of Pope Francis. So you'd include in that category as well the integralists in the states. You'd say they're ma- making the same mistake. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, in a in a very explicit uh, way, there's uh, this small uh, but very loud uh, group of Catholic intellectuals who are seriously talking about, you know, reclaiming uh, Christendom. So the idea that the church would would run run society in some meaningful way, um, in ways that, you know, I, 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 they're pretty vague about what this is actually going to look like and even vaguer about how this is going to come about. 
Um, I mean, the very idea is preposterous uh, as far as I can see, even if it were desirable, which it's not. It seems utterly uh, ridiculous. So it, it it seems like a kind of intellectual posturing, but the argument is that you know if um, if we want a fully Christian uh, reality uh, in the world, if you want the kingdom of God, then you're going to have to um, in, institute this uh, using political power. And so um, the long experiment with Christendom was just needs to be recaptured. Uh, and I think this is a, a really profoundly bad idea. Can you, can you also um, distinguish for me um, between what you've said? You said the church also cannot rise as a prophetic agitator of social justice. You said that, but equally, all your time in South America has taught you so much about solidarity with the poor. So I think the danger is that either people go all the way to the left or all the way to the right, and in so doing, they, they forget the actual solidarity dwelling with, with poor communities. Okay, yeah, I guess what I was trying to say is that um, uh, I'm certainly in favor of social justice. Um, I mean, Catholic social teaching, I think, is is kind of my bellwether on this. But um, but it, I, I, I'm wary about thinking that the only way to bring this about is by getting power in the state and kind of imposing this um, in in some way uh, through the state. So whether it be a program of the left or the right, um, I'm I'm wary uh, of this. I mean, I I think that um, as I sometimes like to put it, I I'm in favor of the separation of church and state. I'm not in favor of the separation of religion and politics. But that means that you've got to define politics in a way that is not captured by the state. So politics in the broader sense of just the way people are organized for the common good uh, in in a society. And so um, I think uh, I, 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 I no longer talk about, you know, anarchism or, you know, doing away with the state or anything like that. Um, I think the state is there. It's like the weather. And there are good um, state interventions and bad state interventions. But um, what concerns me is the idea that we have to impose our agenda through coercive power. And that doesn't seem to me to be what Jesus is calling us to. And so... um, what the church is, especially in this kind of post-Christendom age, what the church is being called to is, um, you know, welcoming the poor, uh, g- getting close to the migrants, um, trying to combat hate speech and feeding people and clothing people and speaking out against injustice. Um, but it's not to, to seize power, um, and and Im- impose our agenda. So that's, uh, I guess that's what I was trying to get at. I'd like to um, ask a, somewhat of a Protestant question, um, Bill, around your descriptions of the migration of the holy. Because if I hear you right, part of what you're saying is that um, the the religious impulse, the, 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 the search for the other, 
of the holy hasn't disappeared. It's been relocated in other places, whether that's the state or the monarchy, you could go down the list. Within Protestantism, um, there's, there's a large movement that keeps asking what's happened to us as churches. And one of the, one of the people that uh, Protestants turn to a great deal to understand what's happened is Charles Taylor. And in which Charles Taylor, uh, in his big book, talks about secularity and the three kinds of secularism. And within Protestantism, there's a great deal of migration to that understanding of where we are. Um, but you're, I, I think I hear you saying something quite different from that, 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 that actually what confronts us is not secularism as much as the, this migration of the holy into other places. Um, so the second chapter of my new book is on Charles Taylor. Uh, oh, okay. And it's a big, long chapter on Charles Taylor um, because he he buys into this narrative of um, disenchantment and right. tries to understand, you know, how it came about. And he talks about the difference between uh, medieval people as porous selves and modern people as buffered selves. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we can kind of take a distance from... Uh, you know, illness and spirits and that sort of thing, whereas uh, the medieval person saw themselves as porous cells and so on. And I don't even think Taylor believes that in a lot of ways. And so part of what I try to show in that chapter is that even Taylor himself uh, doesn't fully buy this. He talks about, for example, um, uh, Bretons, uh, so people that live in Brittany, that area of France, um, how the church kind of collapsed uh, in the post-war period and people moved towards consumerism as, it, uh, as you know, an alternative to Catholicism. And it all happened very quickly. And um, he says, uh, it's almost as if consumerism were a stronger form of magic than the Catholic sacraments. And he'll say in the book, so the word almost there protects his thesis, um, but he'll talk about how, um, you know, um, people who see uh, beauty and wonder in science, it verges on transcendence. It's a kind of putative transcendence. And he uses these kinds of words, people that go to, you know, rock concerts, it's this kind of almost thing. Uh, And then on, it's something like page 772 of the book, (laughs) he says something like, um, uh, people that live in the imminent frame are experiencing transcendence, but misrecognizing it. And I say, look, as a Catholic, that's what he wants to say, right? It's not that God is gone. It's that people are misrecognizing uh, these experiences of transcendence. And so um, that then leads me into the next chapter, which is on idolatry, right? That it's this kind of, there. there's a, a, a basic you know, need for fullness, as uh, Charles Taylor says, 
Um, and uh, it doesn't just go away. He talks, you know, early in his book about two races of people, one that has managed to experience its world totally as imminent. Um, but I don't think ultimately he believes that, that there aren't two races of people in the world. There's one, there are, there's not believers and unbelievers. Everybody believes something, Right. Um, so you tell me what you believe and I'll tell you what I believe and then let's have a conversation. But these distinctions between believers and unbelievers and, and so on are ultimately un, uh, unhelpful. And I, I think they're just, they're just untrue. They're just not um, uh, true to, the, to, to, to what we all experience. It seems like everybody is kind of reaching out for transcendence in one way or another. And some recognize that God is there and some don't, but, but that's the, that's the real thing that's, that's happening. That's the real actual empirical uh, situation. Uh, and I think I, I, I'm curious to see what Taylor uh, will, will think about that. Um, but I think that's the real kind of unthought in Taylor's thought uh, that as a Catholic, he really wants to say, but as a philosopher and as a Canadian, he's kind of afraid to say it in some ways. <laughs> okay. So I'm just helping him say it. Can I, can I take us back to the the theme of our podcast, Leaving Egypt, and what your response is to that. I'm just wondering if there's some overlap there with what you've described as suburbanization of the church and, and of Christians. People have become too comfortable. Um, people just don't want to leave. They've become comfortable with a sort of decadent reality and they've lost something of um, what transcendence really means. And freedom, a sense of true freedom. What do you think about the idea of, of Egypt in that sense? Yeah, I mean, there's a, um, I don't know if it's that we've gotten too comfortable um, because it seems to me like people are very uncomfortable in a lot of ways. Um, that there's uh, this having an abundance of material goods, which is an increasingly small minority of us, I think, really, um, uh, fails to satisfy people and people are still looking for, uh, for other things. I, I think it can't help, but, but not, you know, um, we, we find meaning through material things because we're material creatures and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's what the sacraments recognize. So the last chapter of my new book is on sacraments as the kind of antidote to idolatry. Um, but the problem is that we kind of take this materiality uh, into um, uh, idolatrous forms that ultimately just take joy uh, away from us. I mean, the, the, the critique of consumer culture can never be uh, a critique of people as just sort of having bad morals because they're decadent and enjoy their stuff too much. And so they need to, you know, suffer more and um, give up their fun stuff. Um, that's not going to appeal to anybody. And it, and it doesn't capture the the true uh, joy, I think, of uh, a kind of sacramental uh, 
existence. And so the one of the things that the church needs to emphasize is kind of not this kind of scolding voice, but rather an invitation to a more joyful uh, reality. And I think that's in part what Pope Francis is calling us to as well. Um, and you find this, uh, Wendell Berry has a wonderful essay called The Joy of Sales Resistance. And I think um, that's the kind of joy that people uh, encounter when they go to a farmer's market and meet the farmers and so on. And they might be paying a little bit extra for their eggs, um, but um, it's this, uh, the humanization of economics that people, I think, just inherently find uh, spontaneously find joyful and meaningful. And that's what we're looking for. Uh, and so sometimes we're looking in the wrong places. And and the whole, the problem is that the whole economy is structured so that we don't encounter other people, right? Especially now with online shopping, you don't have to even encounter images of people, right? You just go on and you're immersed in this sea of images of products and you click on the product and then it appears magically on your doorstep and you don't ever have to encounter human beings or, or find out who made your prod product or under what circumstances or what it's doing to the environment or how much people are paid, you know, who manufactured it, who mined the materials, who brought it to your doorstep, none of that. It's just you're, we're immersed in this deep, dehumanized, this kind of neutron bombed world where the people have disappeared and all that's left is products. And I think um, if you try to rehumanize that, then people find it kind of um, spontaneously joyful. And, and not to mention, uh, you know, what happens to the lives of all of these people that we can't see. You know, um, a, a, a sane economy would recognize them and try to help people live uh, more dignified uh, lives. But um, the economy that we have is, is all designed to keep us from, uh, from human uh, encounters. We're just supposed to interact with products and not with people. We just wanted to say a very big thank you to you, our listeners, and especially to our paid subscribers. Being a paid subscriber not only gives you early access to podcast episodes as they come out, but it also soon will include access to our new monthly discussion forum. Paid subscribers can participate and join together with us in a deeper reflection over Zoom. We're excited to offer a space for you to join us and others in discussions about the challenges facing our churches and to explore the imaginative ways in which Christians are forming communities of hope. So do consider becoming a paid subscriber. It will help us continue this work and enable you to meet others on this journey. Just click the link below in the description or go to our Substack page, leavingegyptpodcast.substack.com. So a big thank you again to all our paid subscribers. Now back to the episode. Bill, I, I um, want to ask a question that is going to sound pragmatic and it's not intended to be. Um, and it's, it's, I'm thinking of a parish priest. 
let's say in Chicago, who has read your work, has listened to you, and comes and sits in front of you and says, Bill, I hear this. What do I do in my own parish to engage these issues? Now, let me let me step back and explain a little bit more. Is um, I, I was I was uh, on a web a, a web webinar um, around the theme of what happens when the church stops working, and everybody had come. And the person leading it had talked about Charles Taylor and different kinds of secularity. But it was clear to me, and I I may be misreading, that almost everybody that was on that was wanting to know the pragmatic question. Okay, so what we're confronted with is secularity three. Give us some clues about what to do about it. And in other words, tactics and methods. My, my, My hunch is you wouldn't be saying that to this parish priest. So when this parish priest comes to you and says, I hear what you're saying, the migration of the holy, the idolatry, what would you tell talk tell me about how I might go about forming this people in a different way? Yeah, so the first thing I think I would say about that is um, uh, we need in some ways to regain our confidence in the gospel. Uh, So the first thing that needs to be said is that we're not the weirdos who still worship, uh, that everybody worships. Um, And the only question is, what what do we worship, right? Um, I actually start out this new book with that famous quote from uh, the novelist David Foster Wallace, he gave a commencement address at Kenyon College in 2005 oh, yeah. Yeah, where yeah. he says, you know, um, there's no such thing as atheists in the actual everyday trenches of everyday life, right? We all worship. The only question is, what are you going to worship? And uh, the, the, the reason for worshiping a god as opposed to something else is that anything else you worship will eat you alive, you know, worship your looks and you'll always feel ugly, worship money and you'll never have enough. And he goes on like that. And I just think that's true. Right. And one of the things that does is, um, it, it levels the playing field. So we are not the kind of, you know, weirdos who still, uh, worship, uh, in an age where worship has been eclipsed, but, um, uh, but we, worship Jesus, uh, who is worthy, uh, of worship and is a very exciting and interesting and joyful, um, uh, way to, you know, shows us a very interesting and joyful way to, to live life. And so, um, uh, so a certain kind of confidence I think is, is necessary, uh, here. Um, the second thing I would say is that, um, we've got to tell these stories, uh, right. I mean, you, you have to have an encounter with Jesus. I think that's part of what Pope Francis and Pope Benedict too were calling us to is, um, uh, an encounter with Jesus. Uh, the idea that the God of the universe has come, uh, and is born as a baby in a barn and lives as a poor person who's tortured to death, 
um, is a very strange and wonderful uh, story that we need to uh, to to capture, and we need to make connections between the things that we do in ordinary life and this kind of wonderful cosmic story that Christ is crucified and comes back and instead of getting revenge, says, peace be with you. And all of the riches that, that come out of this, you know, this idea of the cross as the tree of life, you know, with all of this abundance of, of life that comes out of it. I mean, all of that, we, we need to be very explicit uh, about. Um, and then um, make the connections between that story and what we're doing uh, in, in our lives, right? So actual material practices, uh, at the local level. And sometimes, a lot of times, it's what churches are already doing. They just don't make those connections, I think, very explicit or, or very well, um, you know, between what they're doing to feed the hungry and what they're doing when they approach the table, you know, of the Eucharist on Sunday. And if you make those connections, I think people will, you know, see what a beautiful life this is. And, and what a meaningful uh, life this is. Uh, and, and people will find this joyful and attractive. So um, we, my parish priest, uh, who's a wonderful guy, um, I don't think he's ever read anything that I've read, that I've <laughs> written. Um, and he didn't need me to tell him to do this, but he has taken the lead. We, Chicago has been inundated with uh, Venezuelan migrants uh, over 22,000 uh, have come just in the last year and they're sleeping in police stations and, you know, sleeping outside. And our um, parish has opened up. We have a, we were just merged with another parish and we have a rectory that's unused. And so our priest has opened that up and we provide showers and meals and healthcare and um, clothing uh, and all kinds of services for Venezuelan uh, migrants. And he's opened up the church as well now that the cold weather has has hit. And the parish has come out in droves and there's a bunch of us that speak Spanish. And so, you know, they, we, we've got all of this. And it's really energized uh, the parish and it's just been a response to this kind of emergency. And it's been a wonderful, beautiful thing. And I think there's so many uh, uh, places that can do this. Um, and, uh, and it's not, uh, sacrifice in a lot of ways. It's just this, this kind of joyful, um, meeting of humanity. And so, um, you know, that puts then, so there are of course, political issues involved here, uh, and not everybody in the parish is on board with, you know, is, is in the same place with, with regard to, you know, federal immigration policy. Um, but now people can talk about it, not just in terms of what they heard on television, uh, you know, it, because people watch different channels that have wildly different, you know, views of the, the news of, you know, migrants coming across the border. But now people at the parish level can talk about it in terms not just of what they heard on TV, but they can talk about it in terms of what they heard while they were playing a game with, um, 
you know, a 10-year-old who crossed the Darien Gap, the jungle in Panama in order, you yeah. know, on foot in order to, to be here. Uh, they can hear the stories of the people that are coming and um, and this humanizes and personalizes the whole uh, the whole sort of issue, and that I think is what the church uh, does when it's doing what it ought to to do. And, and what do you think about um, the solidarity or lack of it um, between the church and and people who are poor, communities in our own um, countries who have? In some well, in some people would say they've been left behind. Others might be might say they've been the victim of globalization, and abandoned by a particular kind of politics. Um, so you're, you're talking about the church's relationship with migrants. What about the church's relationship with with neighbours who perhaps have become very alienated from the church? That or certainly in our country, there's a big issue about the church becoming very middle class, and although it wishes to often aspires to uh, work with poor, poor communities. It actually has fallen out of relationship with them over time. And this has been a big part of the church's decline, that somehow its, um, its interests have changed. And you know, there are examples from the past of when it really did stand in solidarity with poor communities around jobs, for example, you know, investment being pulled out. And this is less and less the case. And you know, churches often find it easier, and many people have actually privately admitted this to me, they find it easier to help um, refugees than to help dysfunctional families down the road who may be, you know, managing very difficult, multiple problems, because they don't feel equipped, and they and there's a really big class divide, and the relationship simply has gone. So this, this is all about relationship, isn't it? And, and Pope Francis has been saying recently in his World Day of the Poor letter, you stop delegating. Don't delegate to charities. This is personal. Yeah. He wants us to to do this personally and get to know our neighbors. Right. So I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts around that. Well, right. I mean, I think you've uh, put your finger on a, uh, a really important problem. And it wasn't always the case. You know, I mean, in, in uh, you know, British Christianity, you've got a long tradition of Christian socialism. Um, and, it, you know, the Christians were not primarily identified with the uh, you know middle and and upper classes uh, and so it, it's a it, it's a, a really important uh, grave issue um, and and it is all about um, uh, recognizing the inequalities in our in, in our society I mean part of the problem I think is that uh, we've been trained over the last hundred years not to talk about class. Uh, maybe it's a little bit. Uh, maybe talk more about class in the UK than we do in the US. But but any kind of class talk uh, has been forbidden for decades in the in the US. And we really need to talk about uh, about this the way that um, we've been divided by the economic system, which has. Uh, tremendous rewards for uh, a minority of people and tremendous costs for others, and the church needs to needs to get into that conversation and talk about it in you know not just in society but in the church as well that we've succumbed to to classism. And at the same time, when we've kind of banished any talk uh, of, of class. Um, and so we really need to to talk about these issues um, and and reach out. You know, they, 
um, the Catholic worker movement, uh, Dorothy Day, I think they always emphasize personalism, right? That you've got to do these things on uh, a personal one-by-one level. You've got to actually go out and meet people where they are, uh, take them into your own homes um, uh, and and humanize the 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 situation and that I think is an approach that um, that we've often lost you know Wendell Berry writes about how our our major economic uh, practice is to delegate it to others and so we delegate you know, healthcare and uh, childcare and uh, all, you know, all of our economic practices, we just think are out of our hands and are delegated to large corporations uh, and care for the poor is, is, you know, delegated to the welfare state and so on, uh, even though that's you know, in- increasingly restricted. Yeah, so so many things that we used to do as as communities have been outsourced. Yeah, haven't they? And this this so what you've just said there, but also this sense of agency, this sense of loss of agency is is so deeply related to the problem of class, isn't it? Because yeah. in a sense, there's been a power grab over the last few decades, and I mean, this is reflected in people that, for example, the truckers in in Canada, the the Dutch farmers, the Gilets jaunes in France, you know, there there are a lot of movements of people who feel, um, I think quite rightly, that that their power is being taken from them and think decisions are being taken outside the democratic process. Right. And and often that is related to the economy, as as you've said. Things float off to the economy or to the the state and people like, hold on a minute. What's what's going on here? Right, I think that's exactly right, and it's it's been a deliberate strategy over the last fifty years or so. I mean, this is what we call uh, neoliberalism, and neoliberalism has been defined, I think, is most accurately defined basically as the using the state to protect corporations from democracy, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's exactly right, using the state to protect corporations from democracy. Uh, and so you've seen uh, uh, an increasing, and, and this is across so many different areas, you know, antitrust laws have been gutted in the United States by this theory that was promoted by Robert Bork and others beginning in the 1970s, that um, the only uh, check on the bigness of corporation, corporations should be whether or not consumers benefit from uh, from what they're doing, which is a very small, truncated um, kind of basis on which to make decisions about uh, antitrust uh, laws. So, the, so corporations have been allowed to get bigger and bigger and take more and more power as long as they can deliver cheap goods to your to your doorstep, and that's why that's how we've got Amazon. Uh, now um, and so there's so so much of this inequality uh, and the gutting of, of trade unions has been a very deliberate uh, strategy of corporations and the state in tandem. The idea that the you know the corporation and the state are are at odds with each other, I think, has been increasingly uh, shown to, to not be the case. 
Um, and so, um, so these are all uh, issues that we need to to be talking about. And so, the the, the rise of populism is in some ways uh, the response to this tremendous inequality that's that's happened over the last 50 years. But unfortunately, it's been sidelined into some some really dangerous and unhelpful uh, forms. And oftentimes what passes for populism is not true populism at all. It's just the kind of gathering of grievances around certain empty signifiers like, you know, border walls and things like that uh, in order to manipulate people uh, further. So I want to ask this the question about the state. Um, you're, you're familiar with um, James Scott's book, uh, Seeing Like a State? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great book. Uh, it's a great book. And I mean, to oversimplify Part of the argument is that what the state does is abstract and objectify and distance. And, and, and actually for the state to function as it wants to, it has to break down the interdependence of people at the local because it's right. the state that provides. And it seems to me that we've been in that one long enough that it's become the habitus, our way of life. Um, and so I listen to churches, churches I, church I go to, and they talk about all the wonderful things that they are doing for people. Uh, they set up ministries of helping people and train their, their congregation members in this one has, it's called a Stevens ministry in which you get trained to go and help. And all of that, it seems to me is it is the migration of the holy. Uh, it, it is the states taking over of our very imaginations. And, and the, 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 that, that's not a superficial thing. That, that goes deep, deep, deep into our practices and imaginations. And I, I'm wondering, I'm wondering, Bill, have, have you thought about how do you, how do you counter that as God's people? Because, in, you know, and we hinted at this, that Jesus comes all the way down. Jesus is on the ground amongst us. Um, and, and, and that seems to me to be something that we've lost in a very deep way. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, and so whenever we think about a problem, we think, well, we ought to write our congressman and tell them to do something about this uh, rather than simply doing it um, right. doing it ourselves, right? Uh, a, a liberal says, oh, the homeless aren't being fed. Let's, you know, write our congressman. And a, a radical says, the homeless aren't being fed. Let's feed them. You know, um, and and that um, I think is what uh, exactly what the churches ought to be doing, and that's what it means to be uh, the followers of an incarnate God, as you've suggested, Al. Right? Um, that that it means, uh, you know, as Pope Francis says, going out and getting your getting your hands dirty and making a making a mess of things. Um, but it's it's solidarity. It's not just charity, but it's solidarity uh, with people uh, who um, who suffer, and that's uh, that's exactly what we're what we're called to. Um, Ivan Illich, another right. 
yeah, yeah. person that really needs to be read more than than he is and is enjoying a little bit of a, a renaissance now, but a Catholic thinker who was ahead of his time. Um, but he talked about the war on subsistence, and that's really um, what has, uh, you know, th- that's been the face of development over the last couple of centuries, really, is the attempt to take away people's uh, ability to make a life for themselves and make them dependent on states and corporations and powers that they don't control. And this continues to go on uh, across the world, you know, and oftentimes in humanitarian guise, you know, the uh, the World Bank's idea that you have to get big or get out of farming you know that you have to. Um, uh, it's 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 helpful to push people out of subsistence farming and into factories so that right. the economy can develop and they can. You know, I, I mean th- that was that whole um, idea that surfaced. Uh, gosh, it's probably ten, fifteen years ago that capitalism has lifted a billion people out of poverty. Um, most of that was people being pushed out of subsistence farming and into wage labor. So now they actually had an income, whereas they didn't have a cash income uh, previously. And this was touted as, you know, lifting people out of poverty because now they passed the threshold of a dollar and 90 cents a day. Um, And a lot of what's happened is people have simply gotten pushed out of, um, uh, you know, kind of local ways of living which were poor, but uh, at least they had a, a certain modicum of control over their own lives. Uh, but people are increasingly pushed into, you know, market economies where they, they have no control uh, over over anything. And and Ivan Illich saw this uh, and talked about the war war on subsistence, and it's a it's an ongoing war, and it's one that's that's um, increasingly sophisticated. So this. Um the economy. I'd, I'd love to, to dig a bit deeper into the economy. So I, know, I know you know, you know a lot about alternative economies and and things that have emerged naturally uh, from the grassroots um, in, in the global south, for example. But also, um, Catholic social teaching is was consistently demanded economic reform, isn't it? And in this moment, as you've just described, inequality and there is the resistance to uh, vast inequalities is growing. And, and some people would argue that the West is actually maybe heading for another crash, maybe even worse than the previous one. Mm. What what should we be doing as as Christians, both in terms of you know arguing for fundamental economic reform, but also how do how do we begin to conceive of you know, God's economy in in the local? How do we begin to generate um, forms of of economic exchange that are somehow not captured by the processes of financialization that get they get us back to the kind of natural everyday economy that um, is it's, it's the way that people have always exchanged things and managed their business together. But somehow, over the certainly the recent decades, this has become captured, hasn't it, by economic practices that again, come from neoliberalism, which, which have this dehumanizing effect. So I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on stories or, or examples of where this is happening, which, which is more than just an, a nice local story, you know, that could become a systemic change. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think I know enough of uh, about this, um, uh, but I've got some examples in my book being consumed, and I'm actually uh, been asked to write a second edition of that, and I need to to look more into this. But the kinds of things that um, Pope Benedict talks about in Caritas and Veritate, um, where he says we got to get get away from the market and state binary and uh, move towards a sort of gift economy, an economy of love. Um, and he gives some examples uh, in there, the economy of communion by the Focolare uh, movement, uh, which is an attempt to kind of create businesses that operate on a different model that still are profitable, but operate on a model in which more than just profit is taken into account. And there are you know thousands of businesses along this uh, model. Um, uh, there are cooperatives. Pope Francis talks about uh, this as, as well, kind of local cooperatives. There's a priest I know in uh, New York who has a, a company called Goods of Conscience, where in his parish, uh, he thinks a parish ought to be a place of production, not just consumption. So in his parish, um, they make clothing from uh, that they get the raw materials for from an organic cotton growing co-op uh, of indigenous people in Guatemala. And uh, he designs clothing and uh, they make uh, clothing, uh, very nice uh, clothing uh, in, in the parish. So a way of kind of uh, these, these kind of fair trade uh, businesses where you see the people that are... Uh, making the the items and you pay a little bit extra for um uh to kind of humanize uh, the economy um there's all sorts of examples there are some quite large examples the mondragon corporation in spain which is a multi-billion dollar corporation but is run on a cooperative model where um the workers are are owners and the top paid person can't make more than seven times what the lowest paid person uh, makes. And so there's all kinds of um, uh, different possibilities. Uh, there are uh, Christian uh, investment firms that are, you know, looking for companies to invest in that are, um, uh, you know, operating on, on, uh, different principles than just the principle of making profit. So there's there, there's all kinds of possibilities out there. And part of what we're trained um, in our current economy to do is not imagine other possibilities. I mean, part of what, what we're mm -hmm. looking at is just a failure of imagination. <laughs> and, and the whole way that our... Uh, retirement funds are structured is designed to make us not again to dehumanize uh, the process right you you put money into mutual funds uh, and have no idea uh, even what companies you've got stock in never mind like what are the companies actually uh, doing uh, on the ground and so the whole attempt to see people and to humanize 
the economy. It's, a, it's an uphill battle, and it's one that is constantly being fought by people that are trying to make us not see uh, what's going on. You know, the, the whole idea that there are actually um, state legislatures in the United States that have passed bills uh, forbidding their states from uh, investing in ESG funds. So fund, that is funds that, are, um, that take environmental and social and governmental criteria into account. Uh, there have actually been state legislatures that have forbidden this because the, it, it's the, the whole idea that we might discover what's actually going on is threatening uh, and and this is all. This is you know the, the people are accused of, of wokeism if they if they try to humanize capitalism, and this to me is just uh, diabolical. It's also very difficult to start a, a regional or local bank uh, because the the big banks it's not in their interest to have that kind of competition. Right. So if 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 you if there was a you know, a Christian investor or, say, a tax expert listening to this podcast, what would you say to them in terms of their imagination? I mean, they, they're the people that could actually imagine an alternative because you need to understand the complexity, right? And most of us don't. But people who are inside that world who happen to be Christian or Catholic, perhaps they they might have a means of thinking that through. Yeah, and there are people that are doing it. You know, there's a parish in... Uh, in Chicago that has started its own credit union. Um, it, you know, we have an account with the self-help credit union, uh, which is now uh, in, started in North Carolina, is now in, in, in other places where they work with minority businesses and low-income people. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, these kinds of places that are out there. Um, we just need to to um, open up our imaginations and, uh, and, and see that there are alternative economies that are possible, right? Um, to, to get away from the idea that there is just this one big thing called the economy over which we have no control. Uh, and the truth is that there's all kinds of different e economies that are out there and, uh, and we need to go looking for them and, and, and create them. What's running through my head is that for the the average Protestant pastor, um, this kind of imagination is hardly present. Um, and I, I don't mean that as a criticism at all. I, not at all. It's what I'm thinking about as I listen to you, Bill, and as you're telling stories, is how do you, how what would it be like to invite congregations to imagine how they could become participants in alternative economies um, on the ground where they are. Um, and what I'm not asking for a an answer, but I'm just, that, that's what's running through my head at this moment in time, because it's how does it get on the ground? And Jenny, it's a little bit like the project we're talking about where um, how do we bring, for example, the practice of Lectio Divina, of dwelling in the Word, where you spend time over an extended period in a text? How would, what would it look like to invite people in congregations 
to dwell around texts that have to do with money and economics, such as, you know, the manna in the wilderness. And what might start to happen to people in local congregations if they were dwelling in that text together and asking, what might be we hearing God? So what I'm what I'm doing, Bill, the interest in your reflections is what are some very concrete ways you can begin to cultivate this kind of space for hearing a different story? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think the first thing you need to do is just go looking for it because it's out there and there are lots of Christians that are doing this kind of work and um, congregations that are doing this sort of work. Um, there's, and uh, bringing, you know, building networks of churches that are doing this kind of work, I think is really important. Mm. There's one group that I've been involved in called the Ecclesia Project. Right. Um, so with uh, Ecclesia with two Ks. Um, and that is uh, this kind of informal network of congregations, uh, ecumenical so across all different Christian denominations uh, that are trying to do the work of being the church uh, in a, an idolatrous age where the state and the market are triumphant. Um, and so they have their annual gatherings. Uh, uh, lately, they've been in Indianapolis in this really interesting church uh, community that has kind of uh, expanded into this whole neighborhood in uh, Indianapolis and have all kinds of interesting, uh, both theological and economic projects going on. Um, and so uh, finding out what other people are doing is uh, a really important uh, step. And there are networks like the Ecclesia Project um, where that make it easy for, for that to happen. Um, so to... And to see the joy that um, congregations that are doing this share, it's really uh, inspiring. And it's, you know, we are trained to think of these matters as being burdensome. And, you know, I don't have time to do that. And, you know, it's, it's so hard to, you know, how do you avoid Amazon? Amazon's everywhere and so on. But if you give people a, a taste of what true agency is like, um, people love it and 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 run with it. It's not hard. It's not a burden. It's a you know, my my yoke is yoke is light, as Jesus says. You know, just um, I'd love to hear you speak a bit about the Eucharist. And um, I, I was struck by something I came across in one of the synodal documents around um, communion, um, where we're sort of being asked to make everything an opportunity for communion. In this is a process that the Catholic Church is going through uh, globally, where Pope Francis is asking congregations to enter into a more relational space and to listen to the Holy Spirit more and recognize that they have become atomized and divided and alienated from the communities and so on. So this, there's a whole set of practices that people are being invited to step into. And this whole idea of, you know, not delegating, not outsourcing, you know, let's get in there, let's be part of it and build relationships with our neighbors so that everything becomes an opportunity for communion. And I think hearing what you're saying and, and what you've said, Al, as well, about 
you know, combining these things, so combining dwelling in the word, perhaps reflecting on um, passages that particularly uh, refer to the to the money and to the economy, but also doing that in relationship with our neighbours who happen to be on low wages. You know, not just an internal conversation by a congregation, which which may well be middle class. There's nothing wrong with that, but to build relationships with those who are in a different position, yeah. that could become a very powerful. Um, reflection space and it's an opportunity for communion it's an opportunity for building back the body of christ i read something you you said bill was so beautiful and you you're talking about these two social imaginations uh, of torture versus eucharist and you said i think that you're in in way you conceived of it torture atomizes the body politic and eucharist draws the body together mm. And that, that's exactly what, what we're talking about here. I'm just, I'd love to hear you expand on that a bit. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, that was my first book, which is based on my experiences in Chile uh, and kind of looking at the social strategy of torture, um, atomizing people, making them fearful of, of each other and, and um, making the kind of individualizing the body politic and Eucharist as this way of kind of bringing people back together. Um, and that um, has kind of been an inspiration for a lot of what I, my subsequent work as well. But I think it's really crucial that we do this work of um, uniting the two halves of what we do as churches, right? The, um, the worship and the service on Sundays uh, or other days of the week, and then um, the, the kind of social, you know, activism and so on. The church can be uh, just another NGO, you know, it can be seen as just another social service agency. And there's plenty of that going on and there's no, um, you know, um, and people, young people tend to look at, you know, the, the charitable efforts of churches and think, well, that's nice, but why would I want to go to sit through a sermon on Sunday morning, you know? Um, uh, and so putting these two things together and kind of seeing the, the broader vision and participating in this, this larger kind of cosmic drama of the incarnation of God in human history, um, that I think is absolutely crucial. And the Eucharist is really important uh, to, to me for, for that kind of making those uh, connections. It's the, it's the eating of the body of Christ, which, you know, for a whole generation that's been fascinated with, you know, the movies about the walking dead and the, and the zombies and all this kind of stuff. I mean, this ought to have this kind of inherent fascination that you eat the body of Christ and then you become the body of Christ um, and then go out to, to, to feed uh, others. Um, uh, to me, that's just such a, a wonderful, rich uh, vein to, to, to mine and um, and the the idea that you know, unlike the things that we consume, that we kind of are constantly sucking things into the self. That at the Eucharist, we are consumed by it, right? We are 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 brought into this larger body, 
by this and and all of the the kind of riches of the solidarity the very real uh, not just metaphorical solidarity that this brings about or can bring about i think is um we really need to be um uh to, to be bringing those two parts of our of our lives as christians together and i think this is what prevents us from being just another social service agency you know putting a a, a band-aid on the wounds of society but it's this a whole vision of a different way of living and a, and a sacred way of living, a sacramental way of living in the world. Uh, and these, these are riches that we need to share with the world. I think that's a wonderful place perhaps to bring our conversation to an end. I think we could talk to you all, all day, Bill. It's yeah, been great. Thank you so good. much for yeah. spending the time with yeah. us. Oh, it's been delightful for me too. Yeah, Bill, thank you so very much. And, and, I'm looking forward to the book. It's called The Uses of Idolatry. Uh, it's Oxford University Press, and it should be out in a few weeks. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Leaving Egypt. We look forward to you joining us again on the next episode. In the meantime, you can find out more at togetherforthecommongood.co.uk And you can find me on alanroxborough.com And do check out Leaving Egypt on Substack too. This podcast is brought to you by Together for the Common Good and the Missional Network. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you'd normally listen to your podcasts. And we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. So that's it from us. I'm Al Roxborough. And I'm Jenny Sinclair. Thank you so much for listening. God bless and see you soon.